When we planned uh, this homecoming Sunday, this past spring, when we envisioned this sermon series returning, vaccines were rolling out. You no longer had to wait in line. Remember when you had to like figure out a way to get to a CVS to get a vaccine? That had subsided. We were beginning to roll back uh, the mandate of wearing masks indoors. We had visions for this Sunday to be a jubilant return to everything that felt normal. Like adult ed in person or children's classrooms that were filled to the brink or even, I mean, we were being very prophetic. We even had visions of like donuts (laughs) and croissants and danishes that were not individually packaged (laughs) and out in the open, even if some droplets got on them and coffee carts. We never thought we were going to be here, back in the sanctuary and in mass. But I got to tell you, this feels a lot better, does it not, my dear friends, than worshiping on a little television screen? Oh, I agree. I did, someone, I said that to someone in the hall this morning, and they said, I don't know, Matthew, it was a lot easier to mute you when you were on the screen. (laughs) God loves you too. Here's the thing, all of this feels utterly familiar, doesn't it? It feels familiar, but in some way it still feels different. It feels familiar, but it feels different. And I want to speak about that feeling that we are all feeling this morning. Uh, It feels familiar, but it feels different. And sometimes when it feels a little different, we can feel a little uneasy about it. Because this is the place, this sanctuary, and this community of faith that we turn to when the world is in utter chaos. When we can't make sense of the world out there, we count on being able to come to these pews to offer our prayers of fear and lament to God. We need this place to ground us when the world seems to utterly shake us. And so when things feel different, even though they're familiar, we can wonder, God, are you still the same? I mean, are you here? That's the question that we all brought with us uh, 20 years ago. In the wake of September 11th, when our entire world got turned upside down, we returned to creaky pews and dusty Bibles, and collectively as a nation, we asked that question, God, where are you in the midst of this? It's the question that we asked and we brought with us in the wake of Newtown, or in the wake of the police shooting right here in our own city, or in the wake of the tornado that hit our neighborhood, and we were in golf carts all week, we said, God, Where are you in this? Can I tell you one of the things I love about being Presbyterian? I love that we are a a people who believe that when we ask questions, we are actually being faithful. I love that we don't have to rehearse prepackaged answers to really big problems. The question of asking, God, where are you in this? Is actually the question that binds us with the faithful and the generations that have gone before us. 
this uh, past Wednesday, our choir was preparing to rehearse. They were putting out the thermometer checks and the, you know, the uh, uh, Purell. Our bells were upstairs ringing. We had uh, folks still in the office banging away on the keyboard, answering emails and making phone calls at 6 o'clock at night. It felt so familiar. It felt a little different, but it felt normal. But the number of people in, that came in the building, they said, Matthew, it feels so good to be back here. Where do, where do you think God's been in all of this? I said, come on Sunday, we're going to talk about it. So for uh, today, in the next four weeks, we're going to be turning to a minor prophet, the minor prophet Haggai, and the book of Haggai, and yes, that's a book in the Bible, but sometimes if you just flip the pages, <laughs> you can skip right over it, Sue. It's too chapters long. I mean, if the pages stick together, you would say there's no Haggai in my Bible, but we're going to turn to Haggai because those two chapters speak with a clarity and an honesty about the questions that we bring with us. This is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to turn To the first chapter of the book of Haggai, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Then I want to give us a bit of history, context to what we have just read. And then I want to lift up the four most powerful words that we can ever hear in our life. The four most powerful words that will help us in our faith. And then I want to give us an invitation at the end that we will find right here in the font. So friends, before we turn to the scriptures, will you pray with me? Hover here. Hover in this sanctuary, O God, just as you hovered over the waters of creation. Reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that they would be your word to us here and now. And breathe new life, O God, into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts. That all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Remember, when we hear names in the scriptures, we've got to pay attention. Even when they're names that we don't necessarily know how to pronounce and we don't know who they are, they're there for a reason. You're going to hear some names in the first verse. This is what you should be thinking. This would be as if uh, the writer of Haggai said, uh, when Joe Biden was president and Greg Abbott was the governor of Texas, they are orienting us not to who they endorse. They are orienting us to a particular time and place in history and the particular issues that are facing those people. That's what Haggai is inviting us to do. Listen for the word of the Lord to all of us this day from the first chapter First 13 verses of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Is it a time 
for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. I mean, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to drink. And you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you, you that earn wages, that earn wages, you put them into bags with holes in them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because my house lies in ruins while all of you hurry off to your own houses. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought. Called for a drought on the land and in the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil and what the soil produces on human beings and on animals and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bit of background, backstory. Jerusalem was a once thriving city. They were experiencing wealth and prosperity unlike anything that they had ever imagined. This was promised to them as God's people when they were enslaved in Egypt. They have come in and they have built businesses, they have built houses, and they also built a temple, which is really important. A temple was a sign in Jerusalem of God's presence with them and the promise of God that says, you are my people, I am with you always. If you are reading to your children in the children's Bible, this is the temple under Solomon. And it was majestic and glorious. For the first time in the Israelites' history, they are able to say to their children and their, and their grandchildren, you are going to have a life better than the one that I had. All is going well in Jerusalem until 586, and the Babylonian Empire rises up. Two things to know about the Babylonian Empire. They are very ambitious, and they are ruthless. They are ambitious in that they want to take over as many surrounding kingdoms as they can, and they are ruthless in how they go about doing it. So in 586, the Babylonian Empire lays siege to Jerusalem. Laying siege is a military tactic by which... uh, They deploy an army to surround the entire city and to choke off precious resources from getting into said city. The army will set up a perimeter around the walls of a city and they will choke off resources like bread and water and supplies and wine. Like I said, precious resources you cannot get your hands on. 
And they do this because they want to weaken you. They want you to begin infighting. They want to bring you to your knees. And when you are weak and you are finally about to hit the ground on your knees, they invade. What did I say? The Babylonian Empire was ambitious and they were ruthless. They were ruthless because when they invaded your land, they left nothing behind. They were not kind to your people. The first thing they would do is they would go into homes and they would rip uh, children from their parents. They would then loot everything in the house. They would take it as their own. They would go to any resources that you had stockpiled and they would take them as their own. And then when they got to Jerusalem and they got to the temple, the one that Solomon built, they looted it. And they burned that thing to the ground. They left a wake of bloodshed, trauma, and fear everywhere they went. And as if this wasn't enough, remember, ambitious and ruthless. On their way out of town, they would go by your fields, the one that you would harvest every year, the one that you would pray and say, can we have rain so that we can produce food for our people? They would take salt on their way out of town and throw salt all in those fields to ensure that future generations would never be able to harvest from the fields that their families had worked for generations. They were ambitious and they were ruthless. These people, the Israelites, were in Jerusalem. They were at the height of their power. They felt like they could take on the whole world and now they find themselves as an enslaved and exiled people in Babylon. Where they were for depending on whatever history book you read, between 60 and 70 years. And don't you know, my dear friends, over the 60 and 70 years that they are in exile as an enslaved people, don't you know, don't you know they are carrying that question with them? God, we thought that we were your uh, promised people. We thought your claim was on our life. And if that's true, Where are you? I mean, God, are you in this? Because we look around, and we're worse off than we've ever been. When we look around, we're not sure your promise has extended to the next generation. Excuse me, I need some water. Thank you. We're not sure your promise is extended to the next generation. And then in the second year, King Darius comes into power. In the second year, we're told the exact date of the month. King Darius says, makes a proclamation that is, frankly, amazing. He takes over as king and he says, you know what? We're going to release the captives that are uh, under our care and we're going to return them to their homes. And so these people that have been enslaved and in exile in the Babylonian Empire are now set free to go back to their homeland. And they are not the same people who are returning as the ones who left. Let me pause and say, this is always the wisdom of our lives, my friends. We are never the same people who return as the people who leave. Any of you who have ever walked a, a cancer diagnosis... Any of you who ever have ever walked a, a season of addiction and you're still walking that journey today, any of you who have walked the end of a relationship, you know this. You are not the same person now that you were then. Any of you who are new parents, you know this to be true. 
But this is quite literally true for the Israelites because the Israelites, uh, those that are returning, these are the grandsons and the granddaughters of those who were enslaved and taken into exile. And when they begin to walk back into Jerusalem, the only thing that they are carrying with them are the memories and the stories about this place. They have no experience. They have no real life encounter with this land called Jerusalem. All they have are the stories that their grandparents told them of how the temple used to be packed every week and how good the businesses were in Jerusalem and how that neighborhood where they were raised, uh, that their neighbors were the best people on the planet. And so these Israelites, when King Darius lets them go and they begin to walk back in to Jerusalem, the, the memories they have do not match everything in front of their eyes. Jerusalem is still a bed of rubble. The temple is utterly destroyed. Those fields, the salt has not worked its way all the way through the ground. They have yet to produce. And these Israelites do what we all do when we are faced with utter chaos, destruction, death, fear, worry. They make a spreadsheet. They come up with a plan. I don't know about you, but this is my move. In the face of the absolute uncontrollable, I control the controllables. And so they put together a plan. They go, you know what? We have all these memories of what this place was. We have memories of how this place was prosperous. We're going to put together a plan, and we're going to grow 5% year over year year until we get up and to the right, and then we will look up, and this place, we will return it to its former glory. Except it's not a seven-year plan. It's an 18-year plan. And for 18 years, this is what they do. They rebuild, they think, their lives. But if we're really clear about it, what they're actually rebuilding is their sense of security, their sense of comfort, and their sense of safety. So they start with building their own houses first. So they go back into the neighborhoods, they go into the hills, they harvest the wood, they come down, and they build their houses. The next thing they do is, John, they build their businesses. And then the next thing they do, Kurt, you know what they do? They go back and they uh, sweep their streets. And after 18 years of building. They're tired. They have driven building prices to the point that it cost them a hundred dollars for a sheet of plywood. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a people who want to control everything in the face of what is uncontrollable that they would drive building prices up to be a hundred dollars for a sheet of plywood? Can you imagine? And this is what they've done, Aaron. They've worked themselves to the point of exhaustion. Everything that they thought if they could control, it would bring them a sense of comfort and peace and safety. Every piece of clothing they thought that they could uh, produce, every dollar they thought they, if they could just save, you know, if they could just hit the number, they would be okay. It turns out None of those things are providing them purpose, meaning, safety. They're running on empty. It was right there in verse 6. You've sown much and harvested little, Haggai says. You eat, but you never have enough. I mean, you drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. But no one is warm, and you that earn eight, 
and you that earn wages that earn wages and you put them in to a bag, that thing's got holes in it. The prophet does what any good prophet does. The prophet stands on the outside of culture and says, did you notice just by chance that you might be putting your trust in the wrong place because if you step outside of yourselves just enough you've built all of this but did you look over there the temple's still laying in ruins it's like the the prophet says uh, could the temple laying in ruins perhaps be a metaphor for your relationship with god could the temple the structure that has so defined your people and God's promise in their lives, uh, could that temple that you haven't even touched, has that been the thing standing in your way of knowing who you really are? Do you think you have worked yourself to death, but you haven't actually addressed the question that haunts you deep at night? Does God's promise still extend to me? I mean, does God still love me? Am I still claimed? Are you sure I don't have to earn this? I mean, are you positive I don't have to go through some purity code to stay on the right side of God? I mean, I've just walked a season of cancer. God, are you sure that this still extends to me? We're back in the sanctuary in mask. Will this ever be the same? God, are you with us? Oh, my dear friends. It's the question we carry with us always. It's the question that we need to ask. I want to give you the confidence to ask it because now I'm going to give you the four greatest words that you could ever hear. In the face of all of that, the prophet Haggai then says to them, I, Haggai, the prophet of the Lord, the Lord says to you, I, am with you. God says, I am with you. Where am I in the midst of this? I am right there with you. Does the promise extend? Absolutely, because I am with you. I have been with you the whole time. I was the God of your ancestors who brought them from slavery and to freedom. I am the God who has walked into this season with you. I am the God who will take on flesh in the life of Jesus the Christ so that you will know that there is no place in your life that you could ever go. There's no place in your life where you could ever go where I am not. In just a couple minutes, we're going to come right here to the font. Right here. And Allegra Coleman is going to get passed to me, and she is going to love it. (laughs) And uh, you're going to do what I did when you lay eyes on Allegra for the first time. You're going to go, oh, those cheeks. All right, Patrick and Eliza, here's what we don't know. We don't know where Allegra's going to go to school. We don't know what job she's going to take. We don't know who she's going to marry or not marry. Frankly, she can't even tell us right now what real food tastes like. (laughs) 
But we come to the font with Allegra today because in some ways we're saying none of that matters. Because God's claim on Allegra's life has been with Allegra long before she knows how to even say her parents' name beyond mama and dada. Long before she knows what real food tastes like. Long before she can try to convince us that she has encountered love. None of that matters because what matters is God through these waters has claimed Allegra. To say there is no place in your life where you will go where I am not. For I am with you. And friends, what's true for Allegra is true for us all, even in seasons when it feels utterly familiar and yet it feels so different, especially in seasons when we walk around and we go, God, we're in a cloud and we can't see the future. God's promise is true. God's with you. I am with you. I am with you. Friends, as you go about this week, I would invite you. When you begin to question or get anxious or when you begin to wonder and doubt, just let those four words be a prayer. I am with you. Not because I say so. Because that is the promise of God. Will you pray with me? We believe, O oh God. Help our unbelief. And may we come to know and see you in all places. For you are with us. Amen.